millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about Somalia. We're going to talk about whether Somalia could face something similar to what just happened in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, foreign, mostly U.S. troops pulled out and the Taliban took over. Could that happen in Somalia? In other words, if the African Union forces currently propping up the Somali government left the country, would al-Shabaab, the al-Qaeda-linked militant group that's been fighting an insurgency for about a decade and a half, would it seize power in Mogadishu, much as the Taliban has in Kabul? A political and security crisis is threatening to destabilize the country once again. And now security forces are taking sides. The security situation continues to be of grave concern. Al-Shabaab remains a serious threat, manifesting the ability to plan and execute complex attacks. There's certainly plenty to worry about. Al-Shabaab has been resurgent over recent years. It controls vast tracts of the Somali countryside and infiltrates even areas outside its control, including Mogadishu. Somali political elites often focus more energy on squabbling over power and resources than fighting the insurgency or winning over Somalis by better governance. These political rifts undercut efforts to build a credible Somali army. Donor fatigue is also setting in. The European Union pays for much of the African Union force. It says its funding will drop next year and signals clearly that it can't bankroll the operation indefinitely. Little suggests that Somali security forces could keep al-Shabaab at bay or AU troops to withdraw. The renewal of Amisom mandate must take into account the prevailing political and security realities prevailing on the ground. The African Union says it could consider extending its mission in Somalia, but ultimately its mandate will end. So is Somalia on track to be the next Afghanistan? Could a group linked to Al-Qaeda seize power on what's arguably the most strategic piece of coastline in East Africa? To talk about this, we're delighted to welcome Omar Mahmoud, Crisis Group Somalia expert. 
He's been covering the country for a long time. He's actually just written a piece on this very topic and we'll link to it in the show notes. Omar, welcome on. Thank you very much for having me. So Omar, let's start by talking about the reaction in Mogadishu to what's happened in Afghanistan. You were, I understand, in the Somali capital when the Taliban overrun Kabul, seized power in Afghanistan. What were some of the, the, the reactions from, from people there? Yeah, it was really interesting being there at, at that particular moment. And, and, you know, I think you saw a range of views about whether this holds parallels for Somalia or not. But, you know, the telling thing, I think, was that it came up in just about every conversation. And, and so clearly people were watching uh, what, what's going on in, in Afghanistan quite closely. Amongst politicians and some of the elites, there's clearly this concern that uh, the international partners might have a, a similar level of fatigue when it comes to Somalia. And, and so they see it as, as a worrying parallel. There's widespread consensus that Somali security forces on their own aren't ready to, to stand on their own feet. And so very much concerns if something happens to, to the AU mission, as you mentioned. And, you know, one of one of the major presidential candidates told told me point blank that, you know, the international community's conclusion that the Afghanistan investment is not paying off directly, it very much applies to them. And, and he thought there needed to be some more awareness raising internally around that. It was also clearly a major topic of discussion amongst international actors working in Somalia as well. You know, a good number of actually do have some experience in, in Afghanistan. Omar, could you tell us a little bit about how al-Shabaab itself has responded? I mean, what's it said about the Taliban takeover? You know, so al-Shabaab's clearly, broadly, I think, the movement and its supporters have championed the, the Taliban takeover. You know, its, its messaging has very closely talked about, uh, followed the Taliban offensive over the past few months and, and really celebrated their capturing of, of Kabul. And, you know, from what we hear from, um, you know, reports of celebrations within al-Shabaab uh, territory as well. At a top leadership level, you know, they, they've been a little quiet, no major congratulatory messages. And, you know, there might have been some difficulty in kind of reconciling the fact that, you know, the Taliban did negotiate with the U.S. at one point to get to where they are today. You know, uh, the way Al-Shabaab framed that is, is they really downplayed the negotiating aspects and, and, and focused more on the fact that it's a U.S. withdrawal and, and, and a Taliban victory. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it was telling in, in one interview that we did with with an elder who, who was supportive of Al-Shabaab. You know, he noted that it was it was wrong for the Taliban to engage in the discussions with the U.S., but, but the outcome was somehow right. So there, there was a bit of a, a conundrum, you know, for, for him. And, and so the bottom line is, is I think this is very much a celebration for them and, and a source of inspiration going forward. But there's still, you know, some issues in terms of how they fully present it. Omar, can you tell us a bit about where things stand in the conflict with al-Shabaab? What, what does the group control and, and what, are, what is the status of the war right now? So al-Shabaab controls less territory than it did about a decade ago, but it remains very much in, in a strong position and in, in part has undertaken some adjustments to really make up for that loss of territory and, and really to allow them to project influence into areas they don't even physically control. So, you know, if you break this down geographically, clearly in, in southern Somalia, al-Shabaab's dominant in, in the majority of the rural areas. You know, there's clear stronghold areas, um, but al-Shabaab influence is very strong throughout that. In, in central Somalia, you know, al-Shabaab hasn't been as, as present uh, recently, but over the past year, they've really made some gains in, in a state like uh, Galmadug. And if you go further north, areas like uh, Puntland, they're not very much 
present, though there is a, a little bit of a cell outside the port town of, of, of Bosaso. And, and so what rather you have, especially in southern Somalia, is you have a government and its allies which are hunkered down in urban areas. And, and you see these pockets which aren't really connected to each other. You know, there's always this attempt to secure some of these supply routes and, and you know, connect uh, these government areas. But this has been a struggle given al-Shabaab's uh, mobility. And at the same time, you've had al-Shabaab make this adjustment over the past few years where they've developed this ability to project into the the government controlled urban centers you know and and so they're able to do this and generate finances through extortion payments that are backed up through its threat of force you have them generating this healthy financial balance you have them basically present at a sleeper level within even you know government controlled areas and and so i think it it shows to speak you know when you look at al-shabaab's strength fine they might not be controlling as much territory as, as 10 years ago, uh, but that might not be the best metric we should use in terms of determining the group's influence. And Omar, when you talk about uh, projecting into nominally government-held areas and being able to generate revenue, I mean, what are you talking about there? You're talking about extortion, you're talking about sort of forms of taxation along roads. I mean, what, what does that actually entail? Well, it's definitely uh, an extortive element. So, you know, if you're in, in Mogadishu and you run any sort of business that connects to Mogadishu port, you know, Al-Shabaab will call you whenever you get any sort of uh, container coming in and say, look, we have the manifest. We want taxes on X, Y and Z. And, you know, you can protest. How do, how do they get the manifest? Well, they've developed this sort of uh, system where they have uh, a very strong intelligence capability and they've been able to infiltrate key economic sectors, key government sectors, uh, key security sectors. And so they've really focused on developing this intel capacity over the past few years. Omar, there's been over the years accusations that al-Shabaab has not cared so much about the fate of those living in areas under its control, even at certain points uh, pushing certain areas into famine conditions. What does life look like for those who live in al-Shabaab controlled areas? Well, you know, under al-Shabaab, there are, you know, some, some governance that the group does. You know, it, it can be limited in, in some ways, but we also know in, in some ways it's actually more effective than, than the federal government at times, uh, especially in some niche areas they've developed, like around justice or, or educating social disputes. You know, beyond that, it, it might be a bit limited. They, they've developed things like an education curriculum, but it very much, you know, spews out the, the, the propaganda and sort of their interpretation of, of Islam. And, and so you see a, a less in terms of, you know, broader services uh, beyond that. But, you know, to be honest, the bar in Somalia is, is quite low, though, because you've had a, a situation where the central government collapsed over 30 years ago, you know, more than 15 years before al-Shabaab came into the picture. And, and so their ability to implement some sort of stability and a modicum of administration in those areas does, does generate, you know, some support. But, you know, the flip side of that is I'll say al-Shabaab is not always, you know, a broadly popular movement, because even though they offer some of these things, they also demand from the population, uh, you know, especially in terms of some of the extortion payments we've talked about in terms of recruitment. And so you see times where, you know, that balance between what Al-Shabaab offers and, and what it demands kind of flips. And, and so you do see uh, cycles of, of resistance as well. And is there a, a sort of pattern now to Al-Shabaab's recruitment? I mean, is there a certain demographic there they're recruiting from? And is it just because people are angry at the government or are there, or are there other things, other ways that, that Shabab is recruiting? 
Yeah, so this ties in very much to what Al-Shabaab kind of demands of, of the local population. So recruitment, especially in recent years, has kind of gone through at, at the very community level. Al-Shabaab will go to a certain clan out there and say, you know, we need X number of, of youth to join our movement and expect, you know, that clan to, to hand over. And, and so that's where you see sometimes some, some resistance. And, and so it's, it's almost, you know, sort of forced recruitment in that sort of sense. On, on the other side, though, Al-Shabaab also has been quite strategic to target, you know, smaller clans or, or clans that have been marginalized within Somalia's um, clan system, you know, minorities, and, and really kind of come to them and, and make an appeal to say, you, you know, we can be a vehicle for you to reverse your marginalization. You know, we, we can serve as kind of the defender of your clan. And so they're able to to attract some support that way as well. So so there's a couple different angles to it, but it, it can be a little predatory, but it can also tap into some existing, you know, grievances and demands. And so the the picture you're sort of painting is that in areas that are just solely controlled by al-Shabaab, maybe the people don't like the group, but it provides some basic sort of dispute resolution and, you know, maybe basic services. In areas outside its control, in urban centers, we'll talk about in a moment, but there the, the risk is sort of, 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 of attacks by Shabab. But there's parts of the country where there's fighting, right, between Shabab and either the African Union force, AMISOM, or the Somali uh, National Army. So what is what does it sort of look like on front lines? Yeah, I mean, in, in these contested areas, that's where you see, you know, the brunt of, of sort of the violence ongoing, and, and you have this back and forth battle. And, you know, these these can be quite fluid. These can shift, you know, throughout the country. You know, for example, there, there's operations ongoing right now outside uh, Mogadishu, you know, kind of the, the, the further outskirts. Um, earlier, you know, there was this operation in, in central Somalia as well. You see that kind of shift. And in, in those areas, it's quite difficult, I think, for, for local populations that get caught in between. And in, in particular, you know, we see this cycle where the federal government and its allied forces are able to push al-Shabaab from a certain area or al-Shabaab kind of melts away before they even show up. But after you know they liberate that, they're not able to hold it for that long, and they wind up retreating. And Al Shabaab marches in, you know, back in sometimes immediately, and and so that can lead to recriminations for the local population as well, and it really disincentivizes working with you know the government in the future if they don't see kind of that staying uh, power, that staying you know ability on on their behalf. So so that population very much gets caught in in the middle. So let's talk about al-Shabaab's enemies, the African Union forces, the Somali National Army. How is that working? How are operations against al-Shabaab being formulated and carried out? Yeah, so you have a number of different security entities, which in theory are all opposed to al-Shabaab, but that doesn't mean that they're always coordinating and working with each other. So, of course, you have the African Union forces, which are spread out throughout the country and have bases, um, you know, throughout uh, areas where where al-Shabaab is present or nearby. They're working with Somali National uh, Army forces, but, you know, it's hard to talk about the Somali National Army as a coherent unit as well. You know, the the army, you know, is, is consists of a, a number of different entities. You know, some are getting trained by different external actors, you know, whether that's the, the U.S., Turkey, the EU. And, and so it's hard to really have some sort of uh, coherence within that and some sort of even coherence in terms of their doctrine, in terms of their their operations as well. You know, at, at a federal level, federal member states have their own forces. You know, some of these are 
basically, you know, other clan forces that have been integrated at, at, a, at a federal level, others, you know, maybe a little more professional in, in, in an in a area like a Puntland. Uh, but then you go even further down and there's local clan forces as well in, in each area. So it really kind of depends on, on where you are in terms of what force is, is present and, you know, how they're interacting with each other. And so, Amal, when you say member states, what we're talking about are federal units within Somalia, like Somalia's regions, essentially. Exactly. Somalia has a, had a, has a federal system in which there's different member states and then a federal government that's supposed to oversee them on, on top of that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'd say, you know, this patchwork really uh, complicates the ability to undertake a cohesive and coherent operation against al-Shabaab. So sometimes you see attacks happening maybe in one part of the country and you see al-Shabaab members flee and, and they show up in a different part of the country. But that, you know, there, there's no uh, operation ongoing there. And so you see that, you know, that uh, disconnect. And a lot of that obviously also relates in, into the politics of the situation as, as you know, if, if there's no political agreement, people stick to the forces that they have. They, they tend not to integrate them as well. Is your sense that the fragmentation that's occurring in Somalia, is it because there is a lack of overall leadership of the forces? Is it because there are too many actors? What explains the challenges facing those fighting al-Shabaab? Well, I mean, I think the central challenge is a lack of a political sort of agreement and settlement. And I think that then spills over into the security sphere. And so, for example, we have um, in 2017, this document, a national security architecture was developed for Somalia, which was going to pave the way for the integration of federal uh, region, mm. sorry, uh, member state forces with the federal regional forces and, you know, really pave the way for a bit of more coherent force. Now, that document's never been implemented. You know, since 2017, we've had divisive politics between the federal government and, and the member states that have really put that whole thing on, on hold. And so when you see those politics, it, it spills over into the security realm and prevents you from developing that sort of coherence that's really necessary to take on a group like al-Shabaab, which, you know, also has internal divisions, uh, but, you know, honestly shows a greater deal of coherence than, than its adversary. The tensions between the government of President Farmajo in Mogadishu and some of these member states have got considerably worse over the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I think the the tensions between the federal government and the member states are what we call the center and the periphery has always been there, you know, because there hasn't been a clear settlement in terms of how you share power and resources within this federal system. But under the Formaggio administration, they've become quite exacerbated to the point where it's become the dominant sort of frame in, in the country and really held up progress on a number of areas, security being being one of them. And the, the reason for that is, is, you know, I think the Formaggio administration came in and, and saw this tension between these competing centers of power and really decided that, you know, it had to re-centralize a little bit um, and, and really, you know, ensure that the federal government is at the top of the system and the member states are subordinate to it. And their approach to do this was quite aggressive. You know, they interfered in regional elections to ensure, you know, a, a, a pliant leader was elected. Um, they, they've sought to centralize, you know, beyond that also within the legislative, within the judiciary, within the security forces by replacing, you know, certain personnel. And, and so that spurred a predictable backlash. 
you know, and, and created a lot of adversaries. And, and so that got us to a point where, you know, there was this very intense politicking and infighting between the, the federal government and its member states to the point where, you know, cooperation broke down to the point where internal politics really became the number one priority and, and you know, the battle against al-Shabaab or finalizing the the constitution, for example, which is provisional, really became secondary sort of issues. These tensions between Mogadishu and the member states have played into the election crisis, but that standoff has also involved clashes between factions in Mogadishu, right? Yeah, so so the dispute between uh, the federal government and the member states is what's made the election so delayed to this date and why it was so difficult to agree on an electoral model. Uh, these elections were supposed to happen by February of this year. That's that's when Farmajo's constitutional four-year mandate came to a close. Uh, but what we see then right now is also over the past few weeks, a sort of power struggle within the the government, uh, within Mogadishu, and particularly between uh, Farmajo and his prime minister, Roble, uh, who he appointed about a year ago. And, and so that's you know, a, a framing that further complicates getting to the elections. You know, it's really escalated to quite a, a worrying situation to the point where President Farmajo actually says he suspends Prime Minister Robles' powers because he's he's acting unconstitutionally, and and of course Robles doesn't doesn't accept that. Um, so so that invokes a constitutional crisis. Uh, it invokes a, a security crisis at, at some level. We had a near clash, you know, uh, about a week ago at uh, the intelligence headquarters where both leaders had appointed rivals uh, there. And, you know, there's a worry that if this doesn't get under control, that that could continue. And of course, it, it obviously affects electoral implementation as well. And this infighting has done more than just upset the elections from from what I understand, right? Especially over Farmajo's tenure, it's been an enormous distraction from efforts against al-Shabaab. I mean, absolutely. I think that's that sort of internal politicking and that internal struggle is completely distracted from the the fight against al-Shabaab over the past few years. And, and it really shows where the priority is. And the priority has been on the internal politics and not on, on combating the group. And, you know, I think there's a number of examples we could use to really illustrate this. Uh, but one good one is this situation around ghetto which is uh, part of one of the member states in Jubaland. So Jubaland and, and the federal government had a dispute uh, a couple years ago. And in response, what the federal government basically did was send troops to, to, to ghetto, to the northern part of Jubaland, and kick out the Jubaland administration. Now, these were troops that were trained for counterterrorism purposes, that were trained to combat the you know, al-Shabaab group. And, and so rather, you have them taking you know part of ghetto uh, from the, from the Jubaland government or occupying it and and you have Jubaland and, and, and the federal government now facing off against each other while no one's paying attention to to al-shabaab if you think of al-shabaab as a movement and then you think of the of the sort of elites that are governing governing the country whether that's in Mogadishu or whether it's in the different regions or member states is there a sort of big difference between them I mean is, is there a difference in the different clans they come from is there a difference in their experiences outside the country I mean is it is it right to see al-Shabaab as something that's distinct from the rest of the governing class or are the links more sort of interwoven than that well I think within Somalia's clan system you always have interwoven links because you always have members of 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 the clan kind of on on both sides sometimes you know that's an active way to hedge for the for the clan actually to to ensure you know some are on the al-Shabaab side some are within the government you know and that way you you can kind of uh you know reach out to both when when you need to at the same time, there is a bit of a pushback, I, I think, growing in, in, in Somalia with when it comes to diaspora politics. 
you know, I think you see a lot of the uh, current members of government or the ministers as, as coming from the diaspora, as holding second passports. You know, there's this idea that maybe they're not as invested or, or they don't understand the environment as, as much. So I think that's bubbling beneath the surface a, a little bit. Uh, perhaps it, it's come up a bit more in, in recent years, as, you know, uh, Farmaggio was, was also, you know, uh, diaspora from, from the United States. And, and so that frame is, is, is definitely there. And that's something Al-Shabaab can also use to play into its own narrative of how it portrays the federal government. You know, it, it always says this is an externally implanted force, you know, particularly Western uh, on Somalia. They're not even, um, you know, responding to your needs. They're, they're kind of put there by their, their diaspora nations and, and they'll go back to them after. Um, so, so it's definitely a, an, an issue. You know, the diaspora can bring a lot of benefits to, to Somalia as well in terms of sort of their experiences and, and the investments. Uh, but it comes with that sort of double edged, um, sword. And so at the end of the Trump administration, President Trump pulled the small contingent of U.S. troops out of Somalia, if, if I'm right, about 700 of them. What, what were they doing there and, and sort of how significant has their, has their pullout been? So the the troops in, in particular were working with the Somali security sector. And, um, you know, a lot of it was going through training of this particular unit, the Danab, which is a specialized unit within the Somali security sector that really is, is being trained in, in um, to be able to take on some offensive operations against against al-Shabaab and is, is often credited actually for, you know, the majority of the Somali National Army's offensive operations against the group. And, and so those troops were embedded with them. You know, they would go out with them and they would train with them. And so what, what happened, you know, at the waning days of the Trump administration was this repositioning. You know, I think it tied in with this idea of trying to end forever wars and in Somalia fell in that context. And so a lot of them were repositioned out of Somalia to Kenya, to Djibouti, where, you know, the U.S. has other sort of uh, military installations, but are still within close distance so they can kind of come in and go out. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of been the process since then. Um, you know, I think uh, it, it's hard to probably replicate that sort of day to day engagement uh but at least you know they're they're able to maintain some sort of interaction which has kept the the Danab going you know i think there was a lot of concerns about what would happen to the, the Danab after they they pulled out uh but you know it is still a force that's present in in Somalia it hasn't become politicized you know it's it's still engaging in in anti uh, al-shabaab operations and, and so we're kind of awaiting, you know, I think uh, the, the current Biden administration is undertaking a review of, of its Somalia policy, kind of awaiting to see what will come out of that. Uh, you know, I, I have a hard time maybe seeing, you know, the troops uh, go back in uh, if this was completely reversed. You know, it's a bit incongruent with the wider uh, approach to end or, you know, draw down U.S. commitments in these forever wars and obviously the pullout of Afghanistan. And But I don't think that means, you know, the U.S. is, is going to give up its its uh, security assistance programs. You know, I think the Danab has been pretty successful for what it's done. And, you know, I think there's interest to to continue that. Well, so can I ask another uh, a sort of question look, looking ahead? Let's say in a, in a good scenario, uh, elites in Mogadishu, President Farmaggio, Prime Minister Roble, let's say they can overcome their differences. Somalia moves to elections. Let's say you have another Farmaggio government or a new government uh, that is able to repair relations with the member states, you know, improve relations between Mogadishu and, and the regions. Uh, let's say that that gradually has an impact on the capability of the various different forces that are fighting under the umbrella of the Somali National Forces against uh, Al-Shabaab. And let's say 
that you know gradually the African Union is able to hand over security responsibility. That's an enormous number of ifs. And even assuming all those ifs and even assuming that very, very positive scenario, even then, would there be an end in sight to the war in Somalia? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, as you lay out, there's a number of steps that, that would really have to happen. And it brings up the question of still, you know, if all of that happens, you know, what happens to, to Al-Shabaab? Clearly, you know, the movement has been able to adjust and adjust at a pace faster than uh, the Somali government and its partners have been able to react. And, you know, it is very much embedded in, in Somali society. Uh, you know, it's very hard to extricate, you know, Al-Shabaab from that. So, you know, I, I think you kind of have two currents of thought right now in, in Somalia. And one is basically a, a continue the course option that we just need to do the course, but we need to do a bit better. We need to double down on the security aspect. We need to maybe have some sort of off ramps for, for Al-Shabaab, whether that's through a defection program. And, you know, we need a, a government that can undertake the necessary reconciliation efforts and really get its political house in order. You know, so it's, it's basically stay the course, but do it a little bit better. And, and to me, that's a little unsatisfying of, of an option. You know, I think there needs to be a sort of consideration of, you know, how do we get to a wider political settlement? You know, even those who push the state of the course, they admit that this fight against al-Shabaab, you know, will end in dialogue at some point. You know, it's just a question of, of you know, not doing that right now because the group is, 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 is in a dominant position, but trying to, you know, strengthen the federal government to get to the point where, where it can engage in, in a position of strength. You know, one of the lessons I, I take out of the, the Taliban case is, is obviously external state building projects are, are very difficult and struggle to gain legitimacy, but partners will also leave one day. And I think we see that clock sort of ticking in, in Somalia as well. If you look at the dynamics around the African Union mission, and sort of, sort of the politics there. And so to me, what comes out of that is, is you need to have that political settlement in advance of, of the exit. And then I think that's a difficult prospect, clearly, but it's, it's the way to me that I think can also, you know, be part of the solution that, you know, maybe is, is thought of as, as much further down for, for other actors. And presumably, Omar, the uh, Al-Shabaab also realizes that the clock is ticking on international, I mean, in this case, European patients with funding the, the African Union mission. So in some ways, even if people are starting to realize that talks might be necessary with Shabab, presumably that group's leaders know that the longer they wait, the stronger a hand they, they'll have. Sure. And this is where the Taliban case is also a source of inspiration, because uh, you can say, look, I mean, you know, they struggled for 20 years over there. We've been struggling uh, for 15. You know, international partners eventually gave up in, in that one. And, and we're already seeing signs of that uh, in, in the Somalia case. So it's sort of, you know, if we just kind of continue, we'll we'll basically get what we want. And so I think that's where, where the danger is. If you want to preserve, uh, you know, uh, some of the achievements that have been made, I, I think there's a need to try to bring that process forward so we don't get to a point where, where it's very similar, that, that partners are pulling out, that the group just has to wait it out, and that there's this kind of um, scramble where they wind up uh, taking over. Um, I mean, one, of the, one of the big differences between Somalia and Afghanistan is that the sort of international or foreign forces in Somalia are from the region. I mean, most of them are from, from neighboring countries. Ethiopia has a big contingent and Kenya has a both con big contingent, both of them within Amazon, but also in some cases, uh, contingents outside the African Union mission. They believe that what they're doing is serves a, a very acute sort of national interest. 
are they coming around at all to the idea of of potentially opening the door to to some sort of or at least attempts to explore a political settlement with Al Shabab? Yeah, I mean, I think it's key to bring in the regional picture to this because it, it's definitely a big part of the equation. And I don't think you could have a federal government moving forward with any sort of engagement with al-Shabaab sustainably if it didn't bring in the region behind it. Um, you know, I think you would really have to have that coherent approach. And that's why there's a number of steps that probably have to happen before you get uh, really to, to that engagement um, question, but which is you know, why maybe we push to, to think about that strategy and think through those steps. You know, when it comes to Addis and, and Nairobi, you know, they would still very much have concerns about going down this route. And, you know, part of it is obviously, you know, what Al-Shabaab is, you know, everyone's kind of concerned about, you know, the its sort of interpretation of, of Islam and sort of the things that it would like to see. Uh, but the other part of this is, of course, you know, does Al-Shabaab recognize the colonial boundaries of Somalia? Does it still adhere to this idea of greater Somalia? And, and when you, you know, focus on greater Somalia, which Al-Shabaab does in, in its messaging, that means anywhere Somalis inhabit. So that would be part of Ethiopia, you know, the, the eastern Ogaden region, and that would also be the northern part of Kenya. And so this has always been the issue that's complicated Ethiopia and Kenya's relations with, with Somalia, you know, not just Al-Shabaab itself, but previous Somalia governments as well. And, you know, this has led to wars in, in this region. And so I think that's a, a key question that would have to be answered and, and, and teased out. And I don't think you'd get Nairobi in, in, in um, Addis's support without some sort of guarantee that, okay, the movement will roll back to, to Somalia and not threaten their areas of territorial um, you know, sovereignty as well. And Omar, maybe one, one last one. Al-Shabaab is obviously a, a Somali movement and it's very rooted, as, as you say, in, in parts of Somali society. Abu Beda, who's the current leader, most of the other leaders are, are are Somali, even if some of them have fought abroad at times. But they also have this this link to Al Qaeda. Al Shabaab is formerly an Al Qaeda affiliate, so in principle they espouse the same transnational goals that Al Qaeda does. Even if on a day to day basis they're still very focused on on Somalia or on the Horn of Africa, on the region. What do you make of the the relationship with Al Qaeda? I mean, what does that mean for Al Shabaab? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a key question and obviously one of the key hurdles when we're talking about sort of engaging the group as well, you know, this this relationship with with Al-Qaeda and, and you know, what that means. And, you know, Al-Shabaab has, has maintained a very, you know, steadfast fealty to to Al-Qaeda since, since you know, they publicly um, emerged with this Pledge of Allegiance in, in 2012. Um, you know, it was challenged quite a bit with the emergence of the Islamic State. Uh, both externally with with a lot of overtures from the Islamic State to Al-Shabaab to kind of leave Al-Qaeda brand and come over their side, uh, but also internally. And, and they very much repressed anyone in the organization expressing that sort of interest. And so you saw them double down you know, very strongly at that moment. But it then is, you know, raises an interesting question as to, as to why, you know, what does Al-Shabaab really get out of that relationship right now. You know, we don't see Al-Qaeda core really supporting the movement uh, very strongly. You know, I think Al-Shabaab is a very uh, self-sufficient, you know, local movement um, in terms of how they're generating financing. 
the sense I get is, is there's probably two reasons why this relationship uh, continues. You know, one is the Al Qaeda brand still brings some benefit to Al Shabaab, and whether that's recruiting locally, you know, within the region, uh, you know, Al Shabaab can always kind of tap into the the Somali element. But if it wants to go beyond that, and in Kenya, Tanzania, for example, where there's still some foreign fighters uh, within Somalia, you know, that Al Qaeda brand can tie into that. It can say it's part of the global struggle, and and this is you know the the regional representation of that. And, and the other element we should look at is, is, you know, it's not necessarily the relationship between al-Shabaab and, and al-Qaeda core, but rather al-Shabaab and some of the affiliates of, of al-Qaeda, and so particularly al-Qaeda in Yemen, where al-Shabaab has historically had a closer relationship. You know, we've seen some material and, and, and manpower kind of uh, floating between those. Um, and, you know, this, this ties into the wider dynamics of where, you know, you have a lot of the arms trafficking from Somalia coming from Yemen as well. And, and so it's kind of the broader sort of societal, as, uh, you know, linkages between these as well. But, but I think we see, you know, that relationship still, you know, being, being quite important to al-Shabaab. And, and so, you know, it's, it's the al-Qaeda brand at, at, at the global level, but also more regionally, you know, al-Shabaab's relationship to some of these affiliates that has kept it very much in this al-Qaeda circle. Omar, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. I very much appreciate the opportunity. Richard, if I could be candid, I'm I'm usually quite suspicious of efforts to create connections or comparisons between different countries and people experiencing conflict in different ways. But tell me a little bit about what you think is important about comparing the situation in Somalia to Afghanistan. What do you see as some of the important similarities we need to recognize and talk about? Yeah, of course, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, there's always dangers in trying to draw comparisons between what are inevitably very different places, different, uh, dif- different wars. But as, as Amar talks about, I think some of the parallels in Somalia are quite striking sort of basic equation of a, an entrenched and determined Islamist insurgency, an elite in the capital, a governing elite that many, many Somalis don't view as legitimate or that at least struggles to win support among big chunks of the population, backed up by a foreign military force, you know, feeble Somali security forces, strong signs that international patience is waning. Now, of course, there's there's many differences. I mean, you, you, you could point to many. Al-Shabaab doesn't have the the foreign relations that the Taliban did, the safe havens in Pakistan, the ties to other governments. Al-Shabaab, to some degree, has regional aspirations in a way that the Taliban doesn't or didn't. Plus, the foreign forces that are fighting with the government are from uh, neighbouring countries who maybe have higher stakes in Somalia than, than the Americans did or ended up ended up having in, uh, in Afghanistan. So, of course, there's plenty that's different. But I think that basic equation a government or even a political order whose survival relies on foreign military power, that comparison, I think, holds. And first, I think then it's hard to see sort of how the whole edifice, and I think our concerns about this predated what happened in Afghanistan, but it's hard to see how the whole edifice survives if African Union forces pull out. But I also think it's harder, as Omar said, to to defend the conventional approach that if only Somali elites would resolve their differences, if only you could build a credible national army, if only the government started performing better, you know, that then there might be light at the end of the tunnel, that Shabab might be defeated. I think it's hard to see that as anything but, but an illusion now. I think if you were more cynical, you could say, 
that in reality everybody knows this is uh, a fantasy, that in reality this is just a containment strategy. It's designed to keep an Islamist militant group with regional ambitions at bay and hope that something changes in the future, but without much expectation that's actually going to happen. But it's been enormously costly. I mean, this has been an approach that's meant Somalia has been at war now for, 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 for years and it looks ever less sustainable. Uh, I mean, it looks that the Europeans are not going to pay for it in perpetuity. Now, maybe Ethiopia or Kenya would deploy without the African Union force, pay for it themselves. But I think that would still be quite difficult for them to do. And obviously, Ethiopia has its own problems at the moment. Now, sort of the alternative to this conventional approach, prospects for sort of seeking the political settlement with al-Shabaab that Omar talked about, I don't think we can hide from the fact that that's an extremely difficult question. The regional politics of it are very fraught and just the practicalities of of what that would look like, you know, going to be extremely difficult. Uh, From what I understand, there have been informal talks with some levels of the organisation, efforts to peel away some factions, some of which have been have been successful. But al-Shabaab's leadership um, Abu Ubaidah and the people around him, you know, they've given few indications that they're interested in negotiating a settlement and sharing power, accepting some sort of political and religious pluralism, which you know is, is, is going to be necessary for whatever settlement there is in Somalia. There's obviously the Al-Qaeda links, although presumably you could aim for some guarantees on external plotting or regional aspirations. So, you know, huge challenges. And, you know, I think we have to be honest about those. But it's hard to see that there's much option now except to try at least explore prospects for uh, some sort of settlement with al-Shabaab and hope that, uh, that those efforts haven't been left too late. Worship, can I ask you a question that draws on something that you just said, but also on some of your past experience? If you are a, a mediator, a peace negotiator in the UN right now, and you've in a way kind of dedicated your career to the idea that there is a role for the international community and for the UN specifically to play in, in bringing an end to conflicts and bringing a negotiated political end to conflicts. What are you thinking right now? How do you, how are you thinking about the impact of what's happened in Afghanistan, particularly in light of what Omar told us that, that, that Shabab, but also Somalis are closely watching uh, the events in Kabul? Yeah, it's another uh, great question. Uh, you know, so much has already been written by people kind of reflecting on what Afghanistan means for international state building or international nation building. And you know, I'm sure the debate will go on for, for, for a while. I mean, I think on the one hand, it's important to keep in mind that what happened in Afghanistan, or for that matter, what happened in Iraq, and you know, to some degree, what happened in Somalia was quite unusual. I mean, it wasn't really about helping countries recover after war. It was about regime change, the US and its allies going in, toppling the government, and then have to having to build something in its place. In Afghanistan, you know, that was then complicated by the fact that hunting down Taliban and Al-Qaeda or people that local allies said were Taliban or Al-Qaeda. You know, that was always the priority over you know, stuff like building institutions. And in Iraq, uh, the efforts were complicated by the, the, the debathification, the sort of disastrous aftermath of the invasion, the dismantling of the Iraqi army. But these were attempts to build a new order with the old rulers sidelined or, or excluded. So that seems very different to a situation where let's say, United Nations or other peacekeepers go in 
in support of a peace deal, uh, a settlement that includes most big factions where peacekeepers then go in and provide security guarantees for a transition and you know, ideally for peace building efforts. You know, that type of international intervention is still obviously very difficult, um, but it seems conceptually distinct to what happened in, for example, Afghanistan or, or Iraq. I think on the other hand, if the I mean, if kind of the, the era of war on terror regime change type interventions seems over, thankfully, um, the, the, the era of sort of classic peacekeeping, you know, if it ever existed, is also over, or at least those operations are much rarer. UN or regional forces are now deploying to more dangerous places, places still at war where there are groups who are outside whatever settlement there is, you know, groups that are still fighting the, 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 the government. Uh, places where UN or other foreigners are trying to build capable security forces all the while battling, uh, you know, an insurgency and where kind of governments rely on foreign forces and aid for their own survival with all the problems of corruption and legitimacy that 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 entails. So I think Afghanistan, well, first of all, I should say that obviously the priority for Afghanistan has to be addressing the terrible humanitarian situation, the economic collapse, and you know, rather than thinking through what it means for elsewhere. But if you are going to reflect on that, then I think that although Afghanistan was the product of a certain moment of history that, that's now passed, and you know, obviously in, in some ways quite unique to that moment, there's still plenty about what happened there that people who are involved uh, leading international efforts elsewhere, plenty that they can sort of reflect on and, and frankly worry about. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Nazmo Dirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including all our work on Somalia and the Horn of Africa, on our website, crisisgroup.org. Also check out our podcast on the Horn, uh, it's called The Horn. It's hosted by Alan Boswell. It's really a great look every other week at the politics of the region. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producer, Sam Mednick. And thank you, as ever, to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review, and we hope you'll join us again next week. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.